This week's listener request episode was suggested by at Floofy Skirts by Joe. I totally stalked her Instagram page and saw she makes the cutest tutus for children, adults, and pets. So thank you for this week's topic. After 250 years of slavery, three and a half million former black slaves were now free because of the Civil War. But not a lot of thought was put into what would happen with this massive influx of citizens that would now be pouring into the country. When the war finally came to its conclusion, the Reconstruction era sought to readmit the southern states back into the Union and give the newly emancipated population a new start. Years of trial and error, Congress still had issue connecting and healing the nation. The 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution in 1865 ended slavery. Congress established the Freedmen's Bureau in March of 1865 with a mandate to provide formerly enslaved people with basic necessities and to oversee their condition and treatment in the former Confederate states. But Congress appropriated no budget for the Bureau, leaving it to be staffed and funded by President Andrew Johnson's War Department. Then Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1866 which declared black Americans full citizens entitled to equal civil rights. President Johnson vetoed the bill, but Congress, for the first time in United States history, overrode the veto. The 14th Amendment, added in 1868, established their citizenship and promised the equal protection of the laws and guarantee of their rights as citizens of the United States and the 15th Amendment, added in 1870, promised to protect their right to vote. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. Houston Hartsfield Holloway, a newly freed African American, wrote, quote, For we colored people did not know how to be free, and the white people did not know how to have a free colored person about them. End quote. Historian David Chalmers writes, quote, Slavery was gone, but few people were ready for the permanently enlarged role of the national government, which would have been necessary to really enforce the equal rights of citizenship. That revelation in the relation of the national government to the states would wait for a hundred years until the Civil Rights Revolution of the 1960s, which many people came to call the Second Reconstruction, end quote. However, from the very beginning of Andrew Johnson's presidency, the best of intentions were never achieved. Even though on paper and documented in the United States Constitution that African Americans were to participate in society as full citizens, they soon learned that this was just wishful thinking and no one was going to save them. And then a new form of law and order evolved. E.J.I. says, quote, This message was communicated through an intricate and complex system of racial subordination built after the Civil War to maintain and reinforce white supremacy in a world without chattel slavery. 
constructed of law and custom, force and fear, disenfranchisement, convict leasing, and Jim Crow segregation, the system was fragile and fiercely guarded. End quote. The Equal Justice Initiative also writes, quote, During the period between the Civil War and World War II, thousands of African Americans were lynched in the United States. Lynchings were violent and public acts of torture that traumatized black people throughout the country and were largely tolerated by state and federal officials. These lynchings were terrorism. Quote-unquote terror lynchings peaked between 1880 and 1940 and claimed the lives of African-American men, women, and children who were forced to endure the fear, humiliation, and barbarity of this widespread phenomenon unaided. Terror lynchings fueled the mass migration of millions of black people from the South into urban ghettos in the North and West throughout the first half of the 20th century. End quote. In December of 1922, a schoolteacher was found brutally murdered in Perry, Florida. Even though evidence found at the scene pointed to a local man, the police insisted that it had to have been suspect Charles Wright, for the obvious reasons that the schoolteacher was white, for the murder was violent, and Charles Wright was black. Convinced that Wright was their man, they went on a several-city manhunt terrorizing several black residential communities and accidentally killing one innocent black man. Charles Wright was soon discovered and arrested along with a friend he happened to be with, obviously an accomplice, Arthur Young. Before a case could even be put together, a mob made up of white men took Wright from police custody and burned him alive. Only four days later, on December 12th, the mob came after Arthur Young. While attempting to transport him to another jail, the mob intervened and took him. They hung him from a tree alongside a highway in Perry and riddled his body with bullets. Neither man was convicted of any crime, but were judged and executed because of the color of their skin. This was meant to be a clear message to the African-American communities. But if this message was not crystal clear, following the murders, the homes churches, businesses, and schools were burned to the ground. Families were forced to flee from their homes and find refuge in other areas and start again. No one was held accountable. No one faced charges. And the victims of these hate crimes had to leave everything behind and begin again with nothing. Terror lynchings, as explained by the Equal Justice Initiative, were, quote, horrific acts of violence whose perpetrators were never held accountable. Indeed, some public spectacle lynchings were attended by the entire white community and conducted as celebratory acts of racial control and domination. End quote. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret with Bag of Bones. Can I just be real a second? I live full-time, on the road, in a camper, and because I choose this life, I do need to take extra care when it comes to my safety. I would hate to have to give up my dreams that I've worked so hard to reach because I didn't take these few extra steps. And thanks to Damsel in Defense, they made it easy for me to take extra precautions for my own personal safety. I started purchasing Damsel in Defense products and I love the way they are made. They're not bulky or hard to use and they really have my safety in mind. They didn't break the bank either. And bonus, they come in all kinds of colors, styles, and even some sparkle. 
Thanks to them, I am free to roam about this great country and feel safe knowing that I have some sort of safety device within arm's reach or on my person. If you do not have at least one method of self-protection with you or around you, I urge you to check out our exclusive page, www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones and take responsibility for your safety so you can enjoy life. I am proud to have them in the Bag of Bones family and you'll love them too. Check out our exclusive link at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. Nearly 25% of the lynchings of African Americans in the South were based on charges of sexual assault. The mere accusation of rape without an identification by the alleged victim often aroused a mob and resulted in a lynching, as is the basis of the Rosewood Massacre of 1923. In response to the cry for help from Fanny Taylor, a 22-year-old wife of a local mill worker in neighboring Sumner, she explained the bruises on her body by saying a black man had assaulted her. In 1923, the assault was synonymous with, quote, sexual violations, end quote. And the charge of a black man even looking at a white woman in a sexual way was a hanging. On New Year's Day, a band of 400 or so white men sought out Ms. Fanny Taylor's attacker, or at least that's how it began. The small town of Rosewood, Florida, was established around 1855 in Levi County. It's nestled in an area abundant with red cedar trees, which provided the timber for the nearby pencil factory in Cedar Key. Many of the residents worked at the pencil factory mills or at the turpentine mill. The mixed-race town had schools, churches, grocery stores, and even its own railroad depot. The railroad was used mainly to transport the cotton, turpentine, citrus, and produce, and then, of course, the valuable timber. But later, its presence would end up saving the lives of hundreds of residents. In 1870, they got their own post office. But by 1890, the cedar tree supply had dwindled, and many families had moved west to seek work at a new sawmill in Sumner, only three miles away. By 1900, the town of Rosewood was predominantly home to black residents. On that fateful New Year's Day, when neighbors rushed to the home of Fanny Taylor in response to her scream, she was found with bruising on her face and shoulders and welts on her head. She claimed that a black man came to her house that morning and knocked on her door after her husband left for work. When she opened the door, the man forced his way in and proceeded to assault her. Her assailant fled on foot from the house into the nearby woods. The news quickly spread and an angry mob formed, determined to gain justice. Side note, locally among the black community, they believed that Taylor had been seeing a man who worked the railroad. It was alleged that he would come into town with the train, walk to her house once her husband was gone, and leave again on the train. Only this time he beat and robbed her. And so not to get caught having an affair, she created the story of the black assailant. Sarah Carrier was the laundress for Ms. Taylor and many of the other ladies in Sumner, and she and her granddaughter just happened to be there that morning. Truth or fiction, it was too late now. 
the men's anger could not be assuaged. They were now looking for their own kind of justice, and right on the heels of the Ku Klux Klan making their presence very public only the night before in Gainesville, Florida, which was only about 40 miles away. The men felt it was their right. They decided that the assailant must be the recently escaped convict that was believed to be hiding out in Rosewood, Jesse Hunter. He had escaped from a chain gang and was believed to be assisted by Aaron Carrier. The mob couldn't find Jesse, but they did find Aaron at his home. They took the man from his house and tied him to a car, dragging him behind all the way to Sumner. There he was beaten until Sheriff Walker was able to intervene. Walker personally put the barely breathing carrier in his car and drove him to the Gainesville jail for his own safety. This led them to his cousin, Sylvester, who was suspected of hiding Jesse. The town was in chaos. The mob was setting fires to homes and any building that was in their path. This was a few days into the raid. Families fled their homes seeking refuge into the woods and the swamps nearby, or gather in each other's homes praying that the madness would just end. The carrier house was one of those sought out for safety. As many as 25 hid inside Sarah Carrier's home, and many of them were children. Sylvester was her son. So when a smaller group went to Sylvester's home to force him to give up Hunter, his mother, Sarah, came out of the house to defuse the situation. She was ruthlessly shot in the head. This prompted a hail of gunfire from both sides that lasted throughout the night. In the battle, word spread quickly that two white men were killed. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeray with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a five-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you! The news of the deaths of two white men sent the news reporters scrambling. Stories exploded across the major newspapers about gangs of armed black men on rampages. They inflated the number of shootings and downplayed the white-on-black violence. Sylvester Carrier was eventually found dead inside the house. Finally, James Carrier, the last of Sarah's sons who managed to escape into the swamps after the shootout. His house was set on fire. He was discovered and beaten while he was forced to dig his own grave. When it was deep enough, they shot him. Robbie Morton was eight years old at the time and remembers her father telling her and her older sister, quote, I want you all to get yourselves dressed, put on all your heavy clothing and everything because we've got to get out of here. He didn't say anything about Uncle Sammy out there hanging in the tree, end quote. Uncle Sammy was Sam Carter, the town's blacksmith. He was 45 at the time. It was said that he was seen with Jesse Hunter, and he didn't answer their questions to their satisfaction. He was beaten until he admitted to knowing Jesse's whereabouts. Then, promising to show them where Jesse was hiding, 
they stopped the beating and followed behind. As they arrived in the place in the woods that Sam Carter pointed out, surprisingly, Jesse was not there. Someone in the mob opened fire, shooting Carter in the face. Then, apparently, everyone else thought they should, too. His body was mutilated, and his clothing was shredded as some of the vigilantes took them home for souvenirs. His body was hanged from a tree as a message. Lexi Gordon, who was sick with typhoid fever, was hiding under her home when it was set on fire. She was looking at the man with the shotgun when he shot her in the face. Gordon had sent her children into the woods, but was unable to go with them. The people of Rosewood attempted to slip quietly into the woods. They took whatever children that happened to be close by. They hid in the swamps. Some could look back at the damage being done from their hiding spots. Wilson Hall was only nine years old when he recalled being taken into the swamps by his mother early in the morning before the sun had come up. They walked for miles trying to put distance between the town and them. Lee Ruth Davis told how she remembers hiding with her siblings in the swamp. She says, quote, I was laying there, deep in water. That is where we sat all day long. We got on our bellies and crawled. We tried to keep people from seeing us through the bushes. We were trying to get back to Mr. Wright's house. After we got all the way to his house, Mr. and Mrs. Wright were all the way out in the bushes, hollering and calling us. And when we answered, they were so glad. End quote. Remember when I mentioned that having the train station in the town would end up saving lives? The train was owned by brothers John and William Bryce, and when they heard about the trouble in the area, they took it upon themselves to help. The Bryce brothers knew most of the families that lived in Rosewood. On January 6th, they drove their train into the town and slowed it down. They encouraged the women and children to climb aboard so they could be taken to safety. Many had been hiding in the home of John and Mary Jo Wright, the only white residents left in the town and the owner of the general store. Many would find safety in their home and would wait for transportation out of the town. He directed the women and children safely onto the train. As they slowly chugged away, they could see their homes going up in flames. Robbie Morton and her family were some who were taken safely away from the attack by the train. When her grandmother returned, she found that there was nothing left of her beloved town. They had a car with one gallon of gas. They all piled in and drove until that gallon of gas ran out. Kelsey City. And that's where they started over finding that many of their neighbors there were doing the same. By January 7th, their original suspect still had not been found. The mob used up its last of its angry energy to burn what was left of the town and slaughter all the animals. The only building left standing was the general store, which was the home of John and Mary Jo Wright. Even though the governor went through the motions to quote-unquote find justice, the jury chosen by the governor heard the testimonies of almost 30 witnesses. The majority were white and claimed that there was not enough evidence to warrant prosecution. No one was charged with any of the Rosewood murders or vandalism. The town of Rosewood burned to ash until there was nothing left. Many of the victims did not receive acknowledgement as the death toll still stands at eight, even though the citizens recall men shooting people as they ran out of their burning houses and others being shot while trying to escape. Their names are lost forever. For a long time after the incident, many chose not to speak of it, and the whole thing quietly faded away. Once the violence came to an end, the newspapers lost their headlines and did no follow-up. <laughs>
The citizens, like Robbie and her family, made new homes in other places. Thankfully, she was able to reunite with her father some years later in South Florida. They lost everything, many leaving with just the clothes on their back. Their property was eventually sold back to the state to pay for taxes. John and Mary Jo Wright lived out the rest of their lives in that one building that remained until their death. They were basically ostracized from society and kept to themselves always in fear for their lives because they chose to help their neighbors in their time of need. It took 60 years for the story to resurface, and for whatever reason, a handful of journalists brought the story back to life in the 1980s. One of those journalists was Gary Moore from the St. Petersburg Times, and he said in reference to the story not being told, quote, After a week of sensation, the weeks of January 1923 seemed to have dropped completely from Florida's consciousness, like some unmentionable skeleton in the family closet, end quote. The survivors were encouraged to seek a lawsuit against the state for its failure to protect and defend them. In 1993, one of the largest legal firms in Florida took on a lawsuit on behalf of the survivors of Rosewood and their descendants. Robbie and 12 others were ones who lived to see the state grant $2.1 million in reparations to the Rosewood survivors. And in 2004, the Rosewood site is designated a Florida Heritage Landmark. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere here with Bag of Bones. And I have to tell you, I am so excited to have Lumi deodorant as part of the Bag of Bones family. I aggressively campaigned to get Lumi on this podcast and my website. That's how much I love their products. They are all natural, and just because they're all natural doesn't mean they have to smell like dirt or baking powder. In fact, they don't even use baking powder. If you're tired of the store-bought brands that aren't doing their job, and are ready to try something completely different in an assortment of scents, please give this a try. They have products for men and women, and they go far beyond just underarm deodorant. You have nothing to lose with their money-back guarantee, and when you use our direct link found in the show notes, you'll get free shipping on any order of $25 or more. Click the link in the show notes. Just give Lumi a try. Your friends and family will thank me later. And one final story from Florida in the 1920s. In response to an attempt by African Americans to exercise their legal and democratic right to vote, at least 50 African Americans were murdered in a brutal massacre in Ocoee, Florida, on November 2, 1920. This is now called the Ocoee Massacre. There were two people at the time attempting to help black voters get registered and learn their way around the voting system, Judge John Cheney and W.R. O'Neill. But at this time was also when there had been a resurgence of the KKK. Not only were they involved with keeping the black citizens underfoot, they also had started throwing their weight into the ring of elections. The massacre at Ocoee, Florida, intersected both. Prior to this November election, the two men receive a typewritten letter that states in part, quote, And now if you are a scholar, you know that history repeats itself, and that he who resorts to your kind of game is handling edged tools. We shall always enjoy white supremacy, all caps, 
in this country, and he who interferes must face the consequences, end quote. And it's signed by the Grand Master Florida Ku Klux. They wanted them to stop educating the black community about their legal right to vote. But then, on the other side, there was July Perry, who was a trusted leader of the community, and he was trying not only to educate them, but aid them in whatever way necessary to have them cast their vote for the presidential election. He was a staunch advocate for education and for standing up for your rights. He was not only a deacon in their church, but he was also a labor broker. He owned his own home, land, and farm. On November 1st, the day before the election, with robes and crosses, the Ku Klux Klan marched through the streets of the two black communities in Okoe late into the night. They threatened the people as they walked through, shouting, quote, Not a single Negro will be permitted to vote, end quote. And, if any of them dared, there would be consequences. November 2nd was election day. Some of the residents did show up in attempt to vote in Orange County. However, none were permitted to enter their respective polling places. White enforcers were out around the centers and poll workers were given instructions not to allow their entry. The black voters were turned away with threats of violence or by means of not being able to find their registration information or claimed they didn't pay their poll tax. Yes, at this point in time, as a way to deter the black vote, a poll tax was added, meaning that they had to pay an extra fee to make sure their voices were heard. July Perry promised that if they didn't have enough money to pay the poll tax, he would cover it. That's how important it was for their vote. The KKK knew that if they were allowed to vote, that it could possibly sway the count in the opposite direction. So when the poll workers would shrug their shoulders not being able to find their registration, they were instructed to go to the Notary Republic to get a notarized documentation stating that they had done all the things and that they should allow them to vote. Funny thing, though, on that day, the only Notary Republic was R.C. Bigelow, and he was away on a fishing trip. Most gave up and turned back to their homes. Not so with Mose Norman. Mose was also a landowner and well-known, a well-respected citizen in the town. He even owned his own car. The poll workers attempted to give him the same runaround, but he was not having it. He went over their heads. He drove to Orlando to talk with Judge John Cheney. There wasn't a whole lot that Cheney himself could do except other than offer encouragement. So Cheney told him not to give up. Go back and vote. It's his constitutional right. Cheney knew that Mose had done all the things required. He paid his poll tax, and he should be allowed to vote. Short version, Mose Norman did go back and try again. He and a small group of black Okoe residents went back up to the voting building, and that's where it all began to go very bad. He was turned away, but this time he resisted, shouting that it was his legal right to vote. And this is where Mose was struck, and something of a brawl happened outside of the building. He retreated to July Perry's house and told him what was happening in town. Everyone else was able to be turned away without much incident, and the black vote had not been cast by the time the polls had closed. Meanwhile, at the Perry's home, they braced for the worse. And just as the sun was starting to set, a mob of white men began to surround the house. 
At first, someone shouted into Perry's home, saying that they were looking for Mose Norman, and if he would give him up, no harm would come to him. Perry responded, telling them that Mose wasn't there, and he was not personally coming out of his house. Not exactly sure what happened next, but soon Perry's house was under fire. He and his family lay on the floor. Perry begged them to run out the back door and get as far away as they could, all the while knowing he would never see them again. The bullets were tearing through the walls and the windows as the children used a cat door to squeeze through. They crawled on their bellies out toward Lake Apopka. July Perry did manage to escape out the back door and hide in the sugarcane patch for some time. His arm had been shot off and his leg was broken. When they finally found him, they tied his body to the back of a truck and he was drugged all the way to Orlando. When they reached the home of Judge John Cheney, they strung his body up from a tree in the judge's front yard, and his body was shot with hundreds of bullets. In the meantime, back in Okoe, those who hadn't fled from the city were literally cremated. They were trapped in their homes, and the homes were set on fire. The death toll is still debated, but it seems to be in the 50s or 60s. The town would brag about the events and were proud of the outcome. And when the NAACP pleaded with the Department of Justice to do an investigation, it came back to them declined, as they found no evidence that anyone's constitutional rights were violated, and no one was deprived of the right to vote. This is considered the bloodiest day in American political history. Those that survived that day would never return to Okoe. They had to abandon all they had worked so hard to acquire, their property was stolen from them. The families were never compensated or acknowledged. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Bag of Bones. And thank you again to at Floofy Skirts by Joe for recommending this topic. We are really getting some interesting subjects, don't you think? Be sure to join me for the next episode for yet another listener request. I'm Elizabeth Bougere. Until next time, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougere, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougere.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougere and DCT Enterprises.